Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, March the 3rd, 2022, uh, early afternoon on the West Coast. One pundit has argued that March 22 represents the end of the post-Cold War age. Of course, that's all wrapped up in the events unfolding, the tragic, troubling, and perhaps even world historic events um, unraveling in southern Ukraine or in the Ukraine generally. New York Times headlines today, Russia gains ground in the southern Ukraine. CNN, a little bit more dramatic. Uh, Putin claims war's going to plan as civilian homes uh, bombed. Um, Wall Street Journal uh, deals with uh, the advance of Russian forces as peace talks end. Uh, the Financial Times, which doesn't lend itself usually to drama as a newspaper, um, has a headline about Putin vowing to continue the war as Russian missiles, I'm quoting that the FT, lay waste to Ukrainian cities. That's very dramatic, very troubling. One piece that caught my mind from about a week ago, uh, an opinion piece in the New York Times, uh, was entitled, Why is Putin at war again? Uh, and the answer, of course, is because he keeps winning. Uh, the article, which was written by my guest today, Chris Miller from Tufts University, um, suggests that there is no world leader today with a better track record when it comes to using military power than President Vladimir Putin of Russia, whether against Georgia in 2008, Ukraine in 2014, or Syria in 2015, the Russian military has repeatedly converted battlefield successes into political uh, victories. Um, and uh, Chris Miller is joining me from Boston today. Uh, he teaches, as I said, at Tufts University. Uh, Chris, is this all planned out, do you think? Is still... Putin, a master of politics, does he know exactly what he's doing or are events beginning to spin out of his control? Well, he clearly planned the invasion because we saw it building up along Ukraine's borders and satellite photos for the past several months. But I think the first eight days of war, which is where we are today, have not gone according to Russia's plan at all. Russia was hoping that the Ukrainian army would barely put up a fight, that the Ukrainian political system would dissolve under the initial Russian onslaught and that the war might well be over by now. And in fact, Russia finds itself in a, a struggle that's longer and harder than it had hoped for. Um, but it's still also the case that Russia's got the firepower it needs to probably defeat the Ukrainian military and accomplish Russia's goals of, uh, of changing the Ukrainian government and putting its own uh, puppet in the place of in the place of President Zelensky. So, although nothing's gone perfectly according to Putin's plan, I don't think we can yet say that the Russians are losing. They're paying a higher price than they hope to, but uh, their goals uh, still, unfortunately, seem achievable. Uh, Chris is the author. His latest book is "We Shall Be Masters: Russian Pivots to East Asia, from Peter the Great to Putin." He's also the author of "Putinomics." and uh, the struggle to save the Soviet economy. Chris, what's the biggest threat to Putin at the moment? Is it economic sanctions? 
is are, are there cracks within his um, ruling coalition? Uh, is it m- military defense? Where do you think he worries most? I suspect he worries most about potential cracks within his own coalition, though that's uh, very closely related to the economic sanctions and also to the military difficulties that Russia has faced. It's pretty clear that if you think of the groups that make up Russia's ruling elite, some of them have very little interest in the war. The technocrats that actually run Russia's government, the economic officials and the business elites, very few of them are uh, openly supportive of the war and some have come out and uh, voiced their skepticism. It's only in the security services that there's probably a lot more support. And even then, there are some pieces of evidence that there's uh, debate among the security services and the military, at least about how the war's been prosecuted. When you put these potential fractures uh, within the elite um, next to the difficulties that Russia is facing, uh, they become potentially more meaningful. The economic costs, as you mentioned, have been far greater than Russia was expecting. Sanctions have been tougher and faster. Uh, and the, the 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 military challenges have been much greater, uh, resulting in higher Russian casualty rates and a somewhat embarrassing uh, inability for Russia to move on Kiev and Kharkiv in the first uh, couple days of the war. And so all that contributes, I suspect, to Putin's worry that he doesn't have nearly as much control over the domestic political process in Russia as he might like. We had Chris um, Thomas Sedlacek, uh, quite a prominent Czech uh, economist on the show at the weekend, talking about waging sanctions as if they're war. Do you buy that argument? Can Putin's war in the Ukraine be in the Ukraine be fought by Western sanctions without troops on the ground? Well, I, I see that argument. I think by any metric, sanctions are a less impressive weapon than uh, than military force. Um, the reality is that I don't think there are many people in the U.S. or Europe who are really that optimistic about sanctions changing Russia's calculus in the short term. Whereas Russia's military might well succeed in winning the war in the short term, or at least in imposing a really substantial defeat on Ukraine's army and potentially seizing the capital city. So I think there's a time horizon dilemma that sanctions face. Certainly they're powerful, they're impactful. um, But with the Russian army closing in on Kiev and Kharkiv, ultimately the question I think will be decided by the military balance around those two cities rather than the sanctions. The sanctions will have an impact, but it'll take months, uh, not days. Is Putin calling the shots in your sense, Chris? Is he sitting in a room somewhere, talking to generals, talking to to, to other advisors and, and, and essentially governing this whole operation? Or, or, or is it more of a distributed power arrangement within the Soviet oligarchy? Not the Soviet, sorry, the Russia. That was a, a Freudian area, the, the Russian <laughs> oligarchy. Well, you know, I think there's there's a that was a an accurate Freudian slip, if you will, because there's a a, a real I think parallel between where uh, Russian decision making stands today and where it stood um, in the late 1970s and early 1980s in the Soviet Union, which is a smaller and smaller number of people making decisions about the most important matters of state. When the Soviet Union decided to invade Afghanistan in 1979, we now know from the documents in the Soviet archives that it was a couple of individuals barely consulting the Soviet military who made that decision. And everything we know about the Russian elite today and uh, Putin himself suggests that over his two decades in power, 
the number of people that influence his decisions on key foreign policy issues has indeed shrunk. And so for an issue as important as this is to him, uh, it does seem pretty clear that he's calling the shots. And the other piece of evidence in favor of, uh, of, of this interpretation is that many Russian elites appear to have been very surprised by the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine. They, they seem to think that, in fact, the military buildup along Ukraine's border was just a coercive measure, not actually intended to, uh, to, to invade Ukraine. And so uh, the fact that major um, uh, portions of Russia's elite were uh, really blindsided by uh, the invasion when it came suggests just how narrow this decision-making circle has become. Chris, in your excellent New York piece, New York Times piece, um, you argue Russia's past three wars, as uh, the wars we talked about earlier in, in Georgia and elsewhere, are textbook examples of how to use military force in limited ways to achieve political goals. Is that the case here or is this a different kind of war? It does seem like it's a different kind of war. And the thing that I've been surprised by in this war, which distinguishes it from the previous three, is the extent to which the political goals seem very broad. The desire to oust President Zelensky and to replace him with a uh, some sort of puppet leader uh, is a really expansive goal, far different from what Russia tried to do in uh, 2008 in Georgia or 2014 in, uh, in Ukraine. Part of Russia's difficulties, I think, thus far are related to that fact. If Russia simply wanted to uh, engage in uh, a coercive military operation, imposing costs on Ukraine, trying to extract more concessions from its government, that would have been a much easier operation to undertake. The fact that it's trying to occupy substantial swaths of the country to seize heavily populated areas is just a much more difficult military operation and something that Russia doesn't seem to have prepared very well for. I guess in my sense, Chris, there are two interpretations of that. Firstly, overconfidence, and secondly, desperation. My guess is it's the first. And in, a, in an odd way, Russia is where America was with its invasion of Iraq, seemingly invulnerable and increasingly arrogant and out of touch with reality. Is that fair? I think that is fair. And if, if you look at uh, Russia's interpretation of what Russia thought Ukraine would do in response to the invasion, the Russians appear to have been hoping that Ukrainian resistance would just dissolve. And, and this is a, a conclusion that is really hard to, dr to draw if you were basing it on any sort of knowledge of Ukrainian society. Uh, every opinion poll, every anecdote uh, from Ukraine suggested uh, deep unhappiness with the prospect that Russia would invade, and a, a surprising number of uh, populists said in public opinion polls before the invasion that they were ready to take up arms to fight the Russians. Uh, and yet Russia's strategy seemed to have taken the, none of this into account. And I think if you look at Russia's propaganda about Ukraine, suggesting that Ukraine is really just a puppet of NATO, that Ukrainians want to be liberated from uh, their what Russia calls their, their Nazi elite, uh, this suggests that Russia was actually believing its own propaganda, drinking its own Kool-Aid when it came to uh, measuring Ukraine's desire to retain its independence and fight for its sovereignty. And, and I think this is a, a challenge that many dictators face in the, the latter years of their reign when they've uh, cut themselves off from reality. And It's uh, the no Gabriel Gar Garcia Marquez uh, trap, That's right. isn't it? That's right. That's right. Exactly. They're surrounded and, and with an echo chamber of... Um, of admirers and hangers-on, and they start to they start to believe in their own nonsense. That's right. And and for the past two years, in addition to that dynamic, Putin has been 
uh, undertaking a really extreme isolation regime. Uh, he's very fearful of COVID. And so I think that has even heightened uh, the extent to which he's getting no other sources of information besides what his own security services tell him in his daily briefings. Uh, no one knows what's in those briefing notes, but it seems unlikely that there's a lot of information designed to um, contradict his, his presupposed notions. Chris, we've done a lot of shows on Russia over the years. We did one with Peter Pomerantsev. He's a great writer on the, the, the propagandist nature of the, uh, of the Russian regime. We did one a couple of weeks ago with Angela Stent from the Brookings Institute on how Putin created a paranoid and polarized world. We did one with Anne Applebaum on a similar subject a couple of years ago. How central is this propaganda post-truth world in the Putin regime. I had also Moises Naim on the show last week. He has a new book out, The Revenge of Power. It's not just about Putin, but Putin is exhibit A, I think, in his revenge of power world. Are these essentially uh, digital dicta uh, dictatorships rooted in digital propaganda, in post-truth, you know, I think it is really important in understanding how Putin has been able to hold power for so long. Uh, the fact that he's been able to dominate the media and control the narrative in Russian politics is is precisely thanks to this. And if there were a real diverse set of media options available, people would have pointed out a decade ago that Russia was setting into a period of deep economic stagnation, that living standards were falling, that the government was corrupt. But none of this is able to make it into the media um, because the government controls the TV channels and controls increasingly the internet um, as well. And, and the government, uh, when it sets its propaganda lines, doesn't deny any of the problems that Russia faces, but it, it mixes them in with uh, a variety of uh, whataboutist claims. Well, Russia's corrupt, but isn't everyone corrupt? Or well, uh, living standards in Russia are falling, but doesn't everyone have their own domestic crises? And to a certain extent, obviously, there's a grain of truth to that, but uh, only a grain uh, measured next to a, a whole a helping of, uh, of falsehoods that the propaganda um, uh, adds to the media. And so I think when you look right now at the war in Russia, um, if you only watch Russian state TV, which I, I don't recommend doing, but I occasionally do for professional purposes, you'll find that the war is covered in Russian media, but it never discusses Kiev, it never discusses Kharkiv, it only discusses the Donbass. So even with this uh, this military operation, the most important decision arguably that Putin has ever taken, uh, the media is giving Russians a very skewed view of what's actually happening. And presumably in Russian living rooms, the Russian people uh, have been through this before many times. Um, there are many discussions which we're not hearing, which I would assume are critical of Putin, wouldn't you think? I think that's true to an extent, but I also think we shouldn't underestimate the impact of government control of the media in shaping how people think and the limits of uh, acceptable conversation. Everyone who lives in a society where the media is state controlled will tell you that, of course, they think critically about the media and know that it's propaganda. I don't think it's so easy, though, to get uh, one's head out of the media space that's uh, created around them. Uh, and so I, I do worry that even though Russians have lived under a censored media for generations, and even though there, though there are many traditions of, um, of finding ways to uh, discreetly voice your political views in the context of the restrictions at play, in fact, I think this has a really corrosive uh, impact on political discourse in general, because it sets the terms for what 
people even think to talk about and completely remove certain subjects um, from political discussion. Well, certainly, uh, I would be curious. We'll have to get Peter Pomerantsev on the show. I've, uh, uh, I want to take a break in a minute. And after the break, I want to talk specifically about Putinomics, the Russian economy. But I'm curious as to your take on um, Syria. You, you don't mention Syria as one of the wars that Russia has succeeded in. Yesterday, I had the uh, journalist Joby Warwick, he, the Wash, uh, Wall Street Journal journalist, uh, his book, uh, Red Line, um, it's just out in paperback. And we talked about the Russian involvement in Syria as a kind of 1.0 beta version of what they're doing in Ukraine. Why didn't you include Syria in your successful wars? Because the Russian involvement in Syria has been successful, hasn't it? It has. I, I think for the Russians, Syria was a war that would be hard to fight in Ukraine. For the Russians, the war in Syria was a war against terrorism. And so any amount of violence uh, was acceptable because the enemy was a terrorist. In Ukraine, uh, the goal is to liberate Ukrainians. That's the Russian narrative. And although it doesn't have much relationship with reality, uh, there is, I think, some resistance in Russia, at least right now, about using too much violence on uh, the civilian population because it just fits so poorly with the Russian description of what the war is actually all about. Now, that might change over time as as Russian tactics thus far fail to deliver results. But I think where we are right now, Russia has been a little bit restrained uh, in terms of its attacks on civilian area, areas relative to what I might have expected and relative to what they've done in Syria. But my my guess, I'm afraid, is that that's going to change over time as uh, Russia's existing tactics simply don't work. I'm talking with Chris Miller from Tufts University, one of America's leading young scholars on Russia. He's, his latest book is we Shall Be Masters. He's also the author of a book, Putinomics. We're going to take a break now. And afterwards, I want to talk about Putinomics, what exactly it is and what we should expect of the Russian economy as sanctions bite. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with Chris Miller, the author, his latest book from Tufts University, An Authority on Russia, We Shall Be Masters, Russian Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin. But he's also written a wonderfully titled book. I'm not sure if it's a serious book or not. It's called Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia. Chris, what exactly is Putinomics? Is it a serious thing or is it a joke? Well, it, it is a serious thing. I, I wrote that book because it was often argued that Putin didn't understand economics or care about economic policy. And I thought that was a serious error. It's, it's certainly true that Putin doesn't focus on maximizing GDP or uh, Russian living standards. Um, but it's also true that his rule thus far has only been possible thanks to a very specific set of economic policies. And rather than trying to make Russia wealthy, uh, his economic policies have been focused on trying to solidify his power at home and let him wield it abroad. And what that's meant is undertaking policies that defend the government budget at all costs, uh, and when crises come, making the populace rather than the government pay the costs of them. So if you look at how Russia has responded to economic crises in the past, in 2008, the financial crisis in 2014, after the West imposed sanctions on Russia, um, after it annexed Crimea, in both of those crises, Russia deployed, broadly speaking, the same playbook in economic terms. It shifted the costs of adjustment to the population and defended the government budget so Putin had all of the resources he needed to keep power. And uh, you had a piece, Why uh, Putin's Economy Survives, a couple of years ago in the Wall Street Journal. What is he doing with that money? Paying pensions or, or, or investing in the military? Well, a, a bit of both. Pensions are, are the one form of social service in Russia that uh, continues to be fairly well-funded. Uh, education funding, health spending, um, all of that has been broadly speaking, ignored. But pensioners in Russia are an important political block because uh, perhaps most surprisingly, pensioners turn out to protest if their pensions aren't paid. So pensions have gotten paid, but the rest of uh, the Russian welfare state has been uh, really ignored uh, to the detriment of, of the Russian populace. Uh, so too is infrastructure. Russian infrastructure is um, somewhat notoriously uh, underfunded. and Sounds like America, Chris. We had uh, Fiona, Fiona Hill on the show last year, basically arguing that Russia and America were in the same post-industrial boat, although I guess uh, probably Russia is the only country in the world whose infrastructure is in worse shape than America. <laughs> that, that, that could well be. I, I, I sympathize with Fiona's point whenever I land at JFK Airport, but I, I will say that the roads in Siberia are even worse than the roads uh, in, in the United States. Um, even outside but, New York. Even that road that goes from JFK into Manhattan. Uh, it's debatable, perhaps. It's certainly Russian. Uh, Chris, we've also done a lot of shows about dirty money. We've had Catherine Belton on the show, very brave Financial Times journalist who's now being sued in the courts uh, by Putin's people. She wrote a book, I think, Putin's People. Uh, Tom Burgess, who wrote a book, Kleptopia. Uh, all about the dirty money regime, the economy that seems to underpin Putin and his people. How central is that in Putinomics? In other words, um, is, is, is the most important element in Putinomics um, 
a black economy? So I think the, this black economy does exist. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, Russia's oligarchs and Putin's friends have pilfered away billions of dollars uh, stolen from the Russian state budget in most cases and uh, put into real estate in Miami or, or bank accounts in Switzerland. I think it's easy to overstate, though, the political impact of this, uh, because what you find uh, when you dig into economic policymaking choices in Russia is that although all of Russia's leaders or most of them are uh, stealing money on the side, not all of their economic policy choices boil down to dollars and cents. Uh, and a lot of the key decisions that they make are actually more focused on questions of state power rather than individual wealth. There's plenty of individual wealth being grabbed along the way. But in my view, you can't really understand the decisions the Russian state makes without uh, looking at this perspective of they're trying to uh, increase their scope for freedom of action on the international stage and using economic tools uh, to give them uh, that flexibility to deploy power abroad. Chris, I remember when we had sanctions or we, the United States had sanctions against Iraq and there were all these stories obviously put out by Iraqi propaganda of one kind or another about babies dying in hospitals. Given what you said about the way in which Putinomics is essentially predicated on squeezing ordinary people and maintaining the wealth and power of, of Putin's elite, um, is there a similar danger when it comes to sanctions that this will affect the people, the ordinary people, the pensioners will lose their pensions, uh, the hospitals and the schools will start to shut down and, Rupert and Russian propagandists who are already pretty good at their job are going to have a field day? Well, I think that that's not even a danger, that's a reality. Uh, there's, there's no denying that the types of sanctions the West has put in place have a direct effect on almost everyone in Russia. The ruble has fallen uh, precipitously over the past couple of days. Inflation is going to spike. Living standards will fall. Um, that's that's inevitable if you put uh, this broad of sanctions uh, in place. And I, I don't think we should be using measures like this at all lightly. Um, but I also don't think the situation is a is, is a non-serious one. This is the most, uh, the, the biggest risk to the stability of Europe since 1945, um, you know, a direct attack on the existence of Ukraine as a state. So I think the severity of the crisis uh, merits the measures we've put in place, but you're absolutely right to say that they're not costless either to us or to Russians. What about his comments on nuclear? You, you did an interesting show I saw about what those signaling with nuclear threats actually mean. Chris, is, is he playing games? I assume he is. I mean, is he really serious about threatening nuclear warfare? Well, I, I think it's pretty unlikely that we move in that direction. Nuclear weapons are something that are, uh, in most cases, pretty hard to envision getting any sort of benefit from using. Uh, but it's pretty easy to see the benefit you get from threatening to use them if you're in the position of yeah, uh, not stupid. I mean, he knows that if he uses them, he he gets obliterated too. I mean, it's mutually assured destruction. He's not a terrorist. Well, I think that I think that the the more serious risk that I've heard people articulate, which I also don't take very seriously, is that he uses something against Ukraine, um, a, a small nuclear weapon, as a demonstration of force, and that wouldn't trigger mutually assured destruction because Ukraine isn't defended by U.S. nuclear guarantees. But I, I think that's. Highly unlikely. I think what, is, is, what, what, what would happen in that case? I know it, it's a very unlikely and unpleasant scenario, and I'm not minimalizing it, but what choices would the Americans have? 
if indeed the war continues to go badly or goes worse and the Russians struggle and they launch some sort of nuclear weapon on, on, on Ukraine, the Americans would be forced into direct action, wouldn't they? Well, it's, it's, it's difficult to put our minds in, in that type of scenario. I would say thus far, the U.S. government, NATO, um, all of the major European governments have been very, very clear that although they're going to support the Ukrainian government with military equipment and supplies, they're not going to involve themselves directly. And I would struggle to see that changing. How has the American government done, um, Chris? Uh, Uncle Joe Biden seems to have come to life a little bit, which isn't saying very much. Have the Americans performed well since the beginning of the crisis? There's certainly a lot of blame to lay in terms of their unwillingness to really confront the Russians, their Syria policy, their unwillingness to um, to really take the Russians on when they went in the first invasion of the Ukraine. What's your set? What, what's your scorecard of on the Americans on the Biden administration? Well, I think we've heard a lot of uh, Western leaders, both in the U.S. and in Europe, patting themselves in the back for their unity uh, with regard to Russia, and uh, and I, I I treat that as a sign of that there's not much else to be proud of. And I think if you look at Western goals uh, earlier this year before the invasion happened, the goal was to deter an invasion to stop Russia from actually going into Ukraine. And uh, judging by uh, that goal, we failed. Uh, our goal was to stop the invasion, and yet here we are with Russian forces pushing in Ukraine from almost every direction. Are there any historical analogies? Uh, Western leaders seem a particularly pathetic lot. Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron may not be pathetic, but sort of in the, sort of isolated in some ways, and the Russia and the Germans beginning to play a role. Um, we've talked about this being somewhat like 1914, with the world stumbling into war without anyone really wanting war. What historical analogies would you make to the current I situation? Think, I think we're really closer to 1956 in Hungary or 1968 in Czechoslovakia, which were two uh, crises where the Soviet Union decided to invade their own um, client states and install new governments and the West realized to uh, get involved directly would risk a nuclear war and so basically stood by and let the Soviets do what they want. I think uh, the unfortunate reality today is that that's exactly the Western policy right now. Now we're going to supply a bit more military aid to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have a much better chance of standing up to the Russians than the Czechoslovaks or the Hungarians did. Um, but the basic Western policy thus far, which is, uh, in my mind, very uncomfortable, is uh, to let the Russians have a free hand in Ukraine. 56, of course, there was a, a parallel crisis in Suez. Um, we haven't mentioned the Chinese yet, Chris. As I said, your new book, uh, We Shall Be Masters, Russia Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin. I'm not seeing a lot of pivoting here in the Ukraine. But um, what about the China the, the, the China piece, which is a very large and important piece in this puzzle, well, especially when it comes to Taiwan and the potential for uh, another crisis uh, in this theater. I've been reading a lot of op-eds the past two weeks about how China might be emboldened uh, by Russia's invasion, but I think the, the first week of the war suggests actually the opposite. It's illustrated the difficulties of invading your neighbor, especially with a force 
Russia's military has been deployed a lot more in recent decades than China has. China has barely fought um, any serious conflicts other than a couple of fistfights with the Indians and the Himalayas. So if I were sitting in Beijing, I would be a lot more skeptical of my military's ability to actually successfully carry out any sort of operation against Taiwan. And if I did, I'd be a lot more worried about the, the Western response because a couple of weeks ago, it was far from clear how, for example, European countries would respond if China were to attack Taiwan. And now looking at the rapid and really uh, economically powerful response that Western countries have imposed on Russia, that suggests something similar is possible against China, too, in the future. And there was an FT uh, headline earlier this week suggesting that China was going to play a role in the peace talks, as always in these situations. Perhaps it's the Chinese who were the winners by not participating. There's no doubt the Chinese were the winners the first time the Russians invaded Ukraine, causing a huge uh, crisis in Western Russian relations and uh, forcing the Russians closer to China. I think the same is probably true uh, this time as well. As long as the crisis doesn't escalate any further, uh, if it just stays at its current level, uh, China has not much to lose. Well, you're a very calming presence, Chris. I was a bit more worried before talking to you, but you're a young scholar, but a very wise one. Do you ever worry about this? Do you think we'll still be around next week? Well, I I, I think the, the logic on all sides is that there's plenty of logical ways to escalate, but escalating to nuclear war, I struggle to see how any of the, the major players would find that in their interests. That's for sure. Although they said the same thing about the First World War, not that we had nuclear weapons. Well, uh, it's a real honor, Chris, to have you on the show. I've really, I, I didn't know you, but your your piece in the Times was excellent, and 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 this has been a, a really a very far ranging and coherent conversation. Thank you very much. As I said, your latest book um, is "We Shall Be Masters," but you're also the author of uh, "Putinomics" and another book on the struggle to save the Soviet economy. What else should people be reading, Chris? In early March 2022 to make sense of the world? Well, I think the thing that I found most useful over the past week is to turn back to the history of Russian diplomacy in the Soviet period and the Tsarist period. And I found myself dipping back into Steve Kotkin's biography of Stalin. Uh, not that Putin mm. is Stalin, but I think the, the parallels in their diplomacy are, are really quite striking. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's useful to think through uh, potential next steps by looking at the diplomatic traditions from which Russian leaders are drawing. And finally, Chris Miller, the author of We Shall Be Masters and Putinomics. Chris, who runs the world? Who's in charge? Well, I think if you look at uh, the the Western response to Russia thus far, what we've learned is that Russia's got a whole lot of capability to deploy military power on its border, but that the West has a really surprising financial and economic power with which to respond. And so I think the takeaway from the last week is that the West is a lot more powerful uh, than other countries uh, would like to think. And the chaos in Russia's own economy, I think, is a pretty good piece of evidence on the importance of this economic power, um, even in a geopolitical context. Thank you, Chris. You were